Hey, we want to welcome all of you tonight, and it's good to have you. And again, go ahead if you'd like and grab something to, to eat. I know most of you have had dinner, but maybe some of you came straight from work, and just getting a snack can hold you over. And we also have water there. We don't have our coffee back yet. We'll get that eventually, but, uh, but not right yet. So it's uh, good to see all of you. Also want to welcome our live stream uh, uh, members and, and friends. We're glad that you're here tonight. And wherever you're listening from, uh, we, we do get messages periodically from people who are listening from up on the northeast and even out west. We've had folks who tune in to us, so we're, we're thankful for the privilege of sharing the gospel with whoever will, will listen. And so uh, let's go ahead, if we can, tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 17. And uh, this is a study we've been in since, let me see, August of a year ago. So uh, think about that. We've been here for at least 14, 15 months in Revelation, and we're at chapter 17. There's something about that that just thrills my heart, that we're that committed to the Word of God, that we take our time to work through the text. We don't rush anything. We don't try and uh, fly through. This is not a jet tour of Revelation. This is an actual Bible study. So if you have your notes, you have a, a, a pen and a pad, that's great. Also, let me just mention to you that you can always get uh, what we use on Sunday mornings, which is a journal that we purchase that you can use, and, and many people will follow along in their journal. They have them for every book of the Bible. So you could actually pick up one of those online, probably through Christian book distributors, and I think it's called now, what is, it, what is that? Christian something. Christian book distributors, and, and you can purchase a, a Revelation journal if you want. So um, kind of late in the game to share that, but uh, we just started using that when we started Matthew. Well, let's go ahead and start with prayer tonight. There are always many requests, and we're thankful uh, for the privilege of prayer. Amen? And what the Bible says about giving thanks in all things, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus. We always have things to pray for. We always have things to give thanks for. And so let's begin our service. Lord, there is no better way to start this Bible study than with prayer. Uh, when we pray, Lord, it changes us. And when we don't pray, that is a clear declaration of independence from God. So, Lord, tonight we come with open hearts, seeking your face, because we desperately need your word. We need the truth of the scripture. We need what stands above and beyond and transcends anything that this world can give us. And that's why the Word of God is so sacred and so special to us. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed your own opinion on everything that we need. And tonight we look to it. We're also thankful for the book of Revelation that just gives us hope in dark days that are, are to come. And we give thanks in all things. We give thanks tonight just for the fact that we're in a nation where we can easily and, and openly have a Bible study, where many of our brothers and sisters are in nations around the globe that this would never happen. It would be frowned upon or even persecution would come. And so we're thankful. And no matter what our circumstance, no matter what our future, Lord, we will give thanks to you because... You are above all things, you give us all things, and you hold all things together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, tonight, uh, from our prior study in Revelation uh, chapter 14, verse 8, write, just write that down because I'm going to give you two verses that we've already studied that kind of uh, parallel to the study tonight. In Revelation 14, 8, and also in chapter 16, verse 19, we learned of Babylon's fall. Babylon's fall. Now, here in chapter 17 and 18, we come back to the same subject of Babylon with a closer view. We talked about it last time, I believe, that oftentimes in the Bible, God will make a statement about something, and then He'll come back afterwards and give you even greater detail. He'll put color on the, on the page. Uh, where maybe the first, the canvas is just uh, drawn out, you know, the outline of it, and then he comes back later. He did that with Genesis. He did that because he talked about the six days of creation and the fact that man was created. And then he comes back and he gives you the detail of the creation of human life. And so we see that throughout Scripture. It's happened many times. It happens here in Revelation. So where we looked at Babylon, now tonight we're going to get the closer view it'll all start to make sense. We're going to focus on one thing tonight. We're going to study the pagan organized church that's in the land, that's in the world, and that will take a great role in the tribulation to come. So it's not going to go away anytime soon. And those who want to ignore it and act as if it doesn't exist, they really have not studied the Bible because in Revelation, it's clearly here. Now, the good news is that it will fall. It will not last. And in God's eternal plan, uh, all evil, all wickedness will uh, cease. Praise God. But right now, we live in a world that's filled with it. And we have to be salt and light in a, in a dark and very dangerous world. I found this interesting. Babylon is mentioned 288 times in the English Standard Version of the Bible. That's more than any other city mentioned in the Bible except for Jerusalem, which is the holy city. Jerusalem is mentioned 810 times, so it's not even close. But yet, to all other cities, nothing comes close to Babylon in terms of the to total number of mentions. It was the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, which was located on the Euphrates River. And Babylon was famous for its hanging gardens, these beautiful gardens that they had in Babylon. At one point, Babylon was the, the ruler of the world. It was the global center at one point. Its empire had risen above all other empires. Um, prior to the flood, Babylon was the seat of the civilization that expressed organized hostility to God. You'll find that, write it down, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. It was in Babylon that they raised up the tower to the heavens. God actually says, if I don't do something about this, they will be able to connect here. And so he gave them what? Various languages and separated them all over the earth. So Babylon has a lot of history, and that history goes way back all the way to Genesis. Later, it was the Babylonian Empire when they were at the zenith. Uh, 
that, that, was lo, that, that uh, actually conquered Judah. To the Jew, Babylon was the essence of all evil, the embodiment of cruelty, the foe of God's people, and the lasting type of sin, carnality, lust, and greed. That was uh, the scholar Tenney who made that statement about Babylon. In the Old Testament, Babylon is associated with organized idolatry, blasphemy, and the persecution of God's people. In the New Testament, the city of Rome was the clearest fulfillment of the Babylonian attitude, especially when looking in the book of Revelation. If we had to pick a city today that most exemplified Babylon's system like the Roman Empire did during the days of John, who was writing to us, recording for us everything that God gave him by, by vision, it would probably be Los Angeles or maybe New York City. That would be the modern Babylon. And interestingly, the concept of Babylon is greater than Revelation 17 and 18 that we're going to study over the next two weeks. Uh, it's greater than the reign of Antichrist. Uh, Babylon has always had a presence as the world's religious, commerce, and political system. It's a pagan system that the world uses. Whether we're talking in John's day, in our day, or in any other time in history, but under the Antichrist, during the tribulation, in the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, Babylon will explode in terms of its, its ruthlessness and its power as Antichrist uses it, rides its back, so to speak, into his glory. It's going to be an interesting time. Um, prophetically, Babylon sometimes refers to a literal city. Sometimes it refers to a religious system. Sometimes Babylon refers to a political system. But all of them stem from an evil character of a historic Babylon. Now let's look at verse 1 and let's get started in this chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So the first thing we notice in the first two verses is that in the bold judgment of God, which comes during the tribulation, this world-organized system is doomed. It will come to an end. It's going to end, okay? Babylon will ultimately fail, and it will fall. As a religious system, Babylon came into being long before Christianity, believe me. In a typical satanic imitation, think about this, it anticipated the coming of the true Messiah. Satan knew that the Messiah was coming. And so, according to religious history, the Babylonian religion was founded by the wife of Nimrod, a great-grandson of Noah. His, his, uh, her, uh, the the, the uh, great-grandson of Noah was Nimrod, who, who had a child named Simaris or Simiramis, and she was a high priestess of idol worship. 
and she gave birth to a son who she claimed was conceivably miraculous. This is in satanic imitation. If God has His Son, Christ, who is miraculous in His, in his birth, Satan has to try to imitate. Satan's not smart enough and creative to have his own uh, plan. He's nothing more than a created being of God. And so all he can do is mimic the one true and living God. So he has this woman who has a son. His name is Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z. And he was considered a savior. There you go. So just as God has Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, who was born a virgin birth, now Satan is trying to mimic that. This is in the seat. This is in the foundation. This is the origin of the pagan Babylonian religious system. Okay? Many ancient artifacts remain with the familiar mo motif of the mother Semiramis holding the Savior infant Tammuz or Tammuz, which predated Christianity. You can actually put in Tammuz on a, a Google search, and it'll come up the images and show you Semiramis and Timuz. And it's, Timuz has a, like a crown around his head, speaking of a virgin, like a, almost a miraculous birth, okay? Um, interesting, though. Tammuz was killed by a wild beast, and then miraculously was brought back to life. Now, we would think, okay, well, that can't be the work of Satan. Why couldn't it be? Satan, the Bible says, in the last days is going to, through the Antichrist, through the prophet especially, there's going to be many signs and wonders that are done. Just as people who crave, who hunger after signs and wonders today in Christianity, they are going to, many of them will be fooled if they're here. Uh, when the, when the uh, tribulation starts, because the enemy will perform signs and wonders. Only those who have great biblical discernment will be able to know the difference. Others will, those who are led by sensuality, and I don't mean sexual, I mean the five senses. Those who worship God and think, man, I just got to feel it, I got to taste it, I got to see it, I got to hear it, I got to... They want the five-sense experience before they think that the Spirit of God is moving. They will be fooled if they're around in that day. Because Satan can do things that will fool them. That's why he is the deceiver, right? He's a serpent. And many will be fooled. Paul said, I am afraid lest as many... Lest as Satan deceived Eve with his craftiness, that many will be led astray from the simple and pure devotion to Christ. That what holds us near and dear to Christ is what we know to be true from the Word of God, not the senses. Now, it's wonderful. I mean, it is wonderful when God allows the other senses to get involved in our worship, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. Just don't be led by it, because Satan is counting on you being led by your senses and not led by the Word. So, this Tammuz is brought back to life miraculously. And at that time, interestingly, Baal was the Canaanite name for the Babylonian name Tammuz. 
So now all of a sudden it starts to make sense. Look in the Old Testament. How many of you have ever read the, the name Baal? How many times have you seen other nations worshiping Baal? And Baal was introduced to uh, uh, the, the Israelites. They began to follow the Baals. Well, all of that comes out of the origin of the Babylonian Empire and this pagan world religious system. The Bible makes mention of some of the features of this classic religion of Babylon. In, write it down, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14. Ezekiel 8, 14. God calls the ceremony of weeping for Tammuz when, when he was killed by the beast. He calls that an abomination. He tells Ezekiel, speak against it. Why, why did he say that? Because women were at the city gates of, of uh, Jewish women. We're at the city gates weeping over the death uh, of, of Tammuz. And he's saying, uh-uh, that's an abomination. That is a pagan act of worship. And so he spoke against it. In Jeremiah 7.18, it says the children gathered wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Who is, a, who is uh, the queen of heaven? Semiramis. The mother of, Tam of Tamus. Okay, Tamus. So in Jeremiah it says, and they pour our drink. This is again Jeremiah 7, 18. And they pour our drink out drink offerings to other gods. And this listen what it says. To provoke me to anger. God was provoked to anger by the worship of the Queen of Heaven, who is Semiramis, the mother of Tamus. He used Jeremiah to prophesy against the heathen practices of making cakes for the queen of heaven or offering her incense. And, and, and if you want more text on that, Jeremiah, write it down. Jeremiah 44, verse 17 through 19, and Jeremiah 44, verse 25. 17 through 19 and verse 25. So now let's go to the second part of our text in Revelation 17:1. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters. This means that this, this world religion, this, this false god of religious god, is going to have, have power over many nations. She has a universal, international character. Just further down in verse 15 of this same chapter, it says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. When I say to you that this is a, an international, worldwide problem, believe me, in a way that you and I don't understand. This is unification of all false, idolatrous religions on the face of the earth. Think about every world religion. Think about Catholicism. Think about apostate Christianity. Those who would say to you they're a Christian, but they have changed the message of Christ. They have changed the gospel. They don't see it as the Bible sees it. Those who believe in universal, universalism, universal salvation, that when people die, they only go to hell for a short time, and then love will override God's justice, and they'll end up in heaven. So it's not just the world religions that we think of that are pagan. It's Catholicism. 
It's, it's the apostate Christian church that, that this speaks of. And, and along with all these other world religions. So the great prostitute is a picture of false religion that will dominate the world during the tribulation period. Many people like to identify the great prostitute with the Roman Catholic Church. They tie the Roman Catholic Church to uh, Revelation. To do that is to undersell the magnitude of this woman, Babylon. I'm telling you, you're not giving her full credit for what she has conquered and what she has in terms of her arsenal. All world religions, not just Catholicism, even apostate Christianity will come under her power, under her influence. It's all idolatrous. It's all false. And she will unify all false and idolatrous religions on the earth. So, uh, false religion is not limited to any one church or any one religion. Just please get that. It's not even that way now. Satan, is he, he masterminds many false religions, not just one. So the great prostitute is a picture of false religion that will dominate the world during the tribulation period. Even though in Revelation there is a direct temporal influence of the Roman system, this is not the whole picture. Revelation does, doesn't describe the fall of the Roman system or the destruction of the city of Rome. This great prostitute is much larger and broader than the temporal system that John faced in his time as his people were under the, the uh, persecution of the Romans. And it even got a lot worse uh, before it got better. Uh, verse 2, "...with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk." It's interesting that kings and nations have been intoxicated by this great prostitute's religious Babylon. Remember what Karl Marx said? He said, "...religion is the opiate of the masses." Now when you look at Revelation and understand chapter 17, what it says about this, uh, this, this uh, woman, this false religion, you believe him. Now he didn't understand what he was saying, but I'm telling you it's true. Uh, he's right, it's an empty religion that is the opium to the masses. And boy, do people flood to it. They flock to it. And even just, uh, rather than get in somebody else's backyard, let's just stay in the backyard of Christianity for a moment. We have everything on the spectrum in Christianity. You've got church services that look more like rock concerts, only appealing to the sensual. You've got churches that no longer want to use words like sin, repentance. They no longer see Christ as... as the Bible sees Christ, they've created a different Jesus. One that can easily be entertained and draw lost people. And what you have in those churches are churches that are not churches of, of wheat, they're churches of tares. They've, all they've done is appeal to weeds. What do weeds like? I, I, I remember reading back in the 80s, or actually it was in the ni early 90s, I'm not going to mention his name. Every single one of you in this room know who, I'm, who this man is if I mentioned his name. You've read him. You've heard about him. You'll know the name. I'm not going to mention it. Uh, but he, this is how he started his church in California. 
he went around and he knocked on doors in Silicon Valley. And all he did was ask people, do you go to church? And they said yes or no. And when he said yes, then he walked away. When they said no, he asked them, why not? Tell me the reason why you're not going to church. He kept a long list of all of them and reduced it down to five, or I can't remember, five or ten reasons why, I think it was five reasons why, most people do not go to church. He then started a church based on the five reasons lost people don't go to church. And guess what he did? He packed out the place. Because he gave the lost people what the lost people wanted in church. He did not give them what the Bible says is important. The Spirit of God is drawing men. No man can come to the, to the Father except through the Spirit. But yet when you bypass the Spirit and just say, well, let's just give them the pragmatic answers that they desire. So when they come to the door, they, they, don't, want, they don't want people to, you know, center on them. They don't like to, people trying to shake them down for money. So let's not, let's not do that anymore. We're not going to do it that way. They don't like when we talk about uh, salvation and sin and repentance. Well, let's not talk about that. Let's not use those words. Can you imagine? This is the apostate Christianity that we have. It is rampant all over the globe. Now, it's more rampant in America than anywhere, I believe, because America, you know, we have to commercialize everything. We are all about consumers. We, we see people as consumers. So behind the hearts of not all, but many pastors, the whole thing comes down to two things, nickels and noses. We need more nickels and we need more noses. So let's give the people what they want to get more nickels and noses. That's the downfall of the church. A church is not supposed to be about nickels and noses. The church is supposed to be about shepherding, loving people in two ways, to protect them and to feed them. And what we feed them is not our ideas, not our thoughts, not the things we think they want to hear. We feed them the Word of God. We've not skipped a single verse in the entire book of Revelation for over a year and two months, and we will not skip any verse. Whether the people want to hear it or not, I really don't care. This is what God demands of us. He wants us to follow His Word. I think this is the answer for life. But the apostate church says, no, we've got our own answer. We'll do it our way. So this is what we're talking about. This is this great prostitute that Revelation 17 speaks of. Christ, apostate Christianity is very much part of that. I'm not saying that everybody in those churches is going to go to hell. There are Christians in those churches, people who truly believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe they're there as evangelists. I don't know. But I believe there are true believers that are in those pockets. I wouldn't want to be in that setting. I don't want to do that because I don't want to be sucked into a false system. But some are there. Now, um, the idea of sexual immorality. Let's talk about that just for a moment. That whole concept, that phraseology, sexual immorality, has strong associations throughout the Bible, listen, with idolatry. A lot of times when it says sexual uh, uh, immorality, it's more associated to idolatry than anything else. Understand that this world religious system is well accepted today and especially during the tribulation. Why? Because it appears attractive 
It appears as a spiritual mystery. People love mystery. It appears as a sensual experience, meaning it appeals to the five senses. Morality isn't really a consideration underneath the face of this world religious system. It's not about morality. It's about appealing to people on their level. Verse 3 says, and, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Here's the name, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. So John is carried away into this wilderness vision, and he sees this woman, this prostitute, riding the same beast that has seven heads and ten horns that was previous, previously seen in Revelation 13.1, where it describes the beast that the Antichrist was riding. This golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality, that's a picture of the support that she has by the political power of the beast. Who is the beast? The Antichrist himself. So she has his support. And she has the political prowess available to her through Antichrist. What we're seeing here through John's record of the vision is God's perspective. This is not John's perspective. This is God's perspective of this great prostitute, uh, the association that she has with blasphemy and with the Antichrist. But to the people of the earth, she'll look very religious. She'll look right. She'll sound right. She will appeal falsely to the right things. This is how she will suck people in. But there's going to be, what they don't see is the, sec is the sensual presentation. Uh, she'll have the faith that everybody desires. She's going to have the answers. And when you get to the tribulation, man, there's nothing but havoc that breaks out. Uh, and then this peace comes because of the Antichrist, and out of that peace comes this united front of all the religions together as one. And here she is in the middle of it. She's provided the faith that everybody's always sought. Oh, we're one in the world. Peace in the world, finally. Oh, isn't it wonderful? That's short-lived, believe me. Um, notice, too, that she's clothed with emblems of luxury. Purple, gold, precious stones. And then that word scarlet is used. That's a, that's a symbol or a picture of government. Yet she offers idolatry, abominations, it says in the cup. Impurity, that's filthiness of her sexual immorality. But she presents idolatry and she presents abominations and filth uh, in a sensual presentation. It seems to appeal. Purple and scarlet were the colors of rulers, whether economic or political. If you look back at church history, you'll find that one of the deadliest marks of corruption in the church is a lust for power. A lust for power. 
She was behind it. Wherever you see that, she's the one that's behind it. Now, she wasn't then. I mean, she's not there. But the religious system, the pagan system, in spite of all her glamour, she's nothing more than a prostitute, though. God describes her through John as a great prostitute. <laughs> that's who she is. Nothing more. One last thing. There, and by the way, those who have discernment, those who are live by the Word of God, who understand the authentic and can recognize the counterfeit, they will look at her and others are like, oh, wow, ooh, ah, ee. And they're just going to go, what, that prostitute? Seriously? She's just a hussy. They're going to recognize her. But others will not. Many will not. One last thing. Actually, there's more, but anyway. Next thing, there's a great contrast between the woman of Revelation chapter 12. Remember back in chapter 12, we begin to see the players who are in the, in the tribulation. And God mentions in chapter 12, He presents Israel, God's people, as a woman. Okay, the woman of Revelation in chapter 12. And then there's this woman representing idolatrous false religion. Again, kind of playing off of what I said earlier about Satan imitating God. In a typical satanic measure, Satan presents a false, perverse imitation of what God has created. He does this by uh, deceiving people who are undiscerning and ignorant of truth. He also does it, with a cre uh, it to create a rivalry with God. Two women set against each other as opposites and rivals. One is representing God in the Old Testament, which was Israel, and the other representing this great prostitute. Just as Antichrist corresponds to the real Christ, Jesus Christ, as a rival and an antagonist of Christ. The great prostitute corresponds to the woman that bears Christ. That's not Mary. It refers in Revelation uh, chapter 12 to Israel, that Jesus came out of the Jewish people. Okay. Now, what about the name of mystery written on her forehead? Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. What a title. Good grief. This title isn't referring to the literal Babylon, the city. It's a reference to the spiritual mystery representation, which is the source of all idolatry and spiritual adultery. This is why God destroyed the earth with a flood. He destroyed the people on the earth, except for eight people, because of the amount of idolatry and spiritual adultery. What it says is that this harlot is larger than any one branch of a religious institution. She's the embodiment of Satan's own worldwide religious movement, a world religious system. What Satan is playing into is the philosophy that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. People who take that line of thinking will fall for this woman. Even today, we see the casual disregard for truth, which is crippling the church and plays right into the great prostitute's seduction. It says in verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This woman revels in the persecution of the saints like a drunk revels in wine. It gets her off, man, to see Christians persecuted to death, martyred. In the last days, that's what's going to happen. In tribulation, that's going to be happening everywhere. False religion is always the worst enemy of true religion. 
which is Christianity. Some of the most vicious persecution conducted against the true Christians has been done in the name of the church down through the ages. In the days when the Roman Catholic Queen Mary ruled England, known as Bloody Mary, some 288 Christians were, were put to, burned at the stake over a three-day period. 288 Christians, all because they would not line up with Mary's, with Queen Mary's interpretation of Scripture. The first of these martyrs was a man named John Rogers. As he stood chained to a stake and the fire rose around him, up his legs and shoulders, he rubbed his hands in the flames as if he were washing his hands in cold water. Then he lifted his hands to the heavens and held them high until he was completely consumed by fire. Listen, Rogers went to the stake with such a calm and dignity that the French ambassador wrote that he went to his death as if, quote, he was walking to his wedding. His courage was so evident that the huge crowd burst into applause when they saw him walking towards the stake. <laughs> I love that. That here, this false religion is carrying out its ultimate goal to take out those who follow the true Jesus Christ. And yet those who follow true Jesus Christ being facing persecution, facing being burned at the stake, yet here they are walking confidently because God is with them, much like he was with Stephen, you know, in the scripture where as Stephen is literally being pounded with these rocks and he lifts his eyes to heaven and the curtains pulled back and he sees Christ standing at the right hand of God cheering him on. Praise God. That's who we are. That's what we have in this day and age that we live in. Don't ever forget that. Stop listening to the news so much. Let God be your guide. Let the Word of God keep you in the truth. We don't need the world system. and We don't need even those who might take a moral view of things. Many of those moralists are totally lost. They're going to be kindling wood in hell. And we treat them like they're gods here. We just got to listen to them. Be very careful. Even those who claim to be part of the church could very likely be part of an apostate church. And we don't even know the difference. Verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and, the, and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The focus of the explanation is on the beast, notice. The Antichrist is using her. He is the beast in Revelation. He's using her, just like politicians use religion. She's just a tool to accomplish his purposes. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. By the way, nobody's name gets written in the book of life today. Amen. This whole idea that somehow if you give your heart to Jesus that now your name will be written in the book of life. That's not true. Those names are already there. God already knows with foreknowledge whose name is in the book of life. He established that before the first man was ever created. Amen. He already knew you. You think about that. Wow, what a God. You say, I'm not sure if my name's written in there. How do I know for sure? Walk by grace through faith. Give your heart to Jesus. Then you can be absolutely convinced that your name's in the book of life. And it says here, And the dwellers on earth whose name 
have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. There it is. How do you make it through this dark period? You have to have a mind of wisdom. You have to know the word of God. There is no other way, folks. Take your Bible for a second. Turn to, let's see if I can remember where it's at. Psalm 19. I might be on a wild goose chase here, but let's try. Lord, give me understanding right now, in Jesus' name. Psalm 19. Look at verse 7. This is what the Bible says about the Word of God. This is why the Word is where we find our wisdom. Look what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 19, verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Right there what you see, you have all these, this, these six different words for the Word of God. It's called the law of the Lord. It's called the testimony of the Lord. It's called the precepts of the Lord. It's called the commandment of the Lord. It's called the fear of the Lord. It's called the rules of the Lord. And all six reveal something about the Word of God. It says that it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. And then it tells you the outcome when you make the Word your life and you live by the Word of God. Look what it says. It revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever and righteous altogether. Amen, amen, amen. What you have in Psalm 19... Verses 7 through 9 is a summary of all of the largest chapter in the whole Bible, Psalm 119. Here's your summary. Go back, though, because we're talking about wisdom. It says in our text that this calls for a mind with wisdom. Now, he's referring to the enemy using his own wisdom, but we fight the enemy with God's wisdom, not with worldly wisdom. And if you look at verse 19, in chapter 19 of Psalms, verse uh, 7, it says, The testimony of the Lord, the second part, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. On the surface, you think that means, oh, so people who don't really have a lot of IQ can still understand things and be wise. That's what it says on the surface. That's not what he's saying. What he's actually saying is that in Jewish imagery, you would be discerning and wise to close the door on all other types of wisdom. Don't ever let other wisdoms crowd in where the Word of God lives in your heart, in your mind. And, and, and so what is the popular... Now, play that out of what we see today. What's the popular thing in the world that people think is just so wonderful. Open your mind. We took one of our daughters to college. It was a, a state school. 
And we went into this room and all the freshmen are there with their parents. And it's a huge lecture hall. I don't know how many were seated in there. Maybe 300, 400 people. I don't know. Probably five or 600. And we're in there. And, uh, and this lady gets to the mic and goes, young people, this is the beginning of your life. Your parents have raised you and they've taught you the things that they believe. But we are asking you from this day forward to open your mind. To a Jew, an open mind reveals that you're ignorant. You're ignorant. Because ignorant comes from the whole idea of this openness to whatever. How many of you leave the front door of your house open day and night? Just leave it open. Okay? Why? Why don't you? That's ignorant. I'm ignoring what is true, what I know to be true. You close the door. Why? Because I want to be discerning. I want to control what comes in and goes out my door. I want to keep my kids in when they're little, and I want to make sure things on the outside don't come in. That's wise. If, you, if a person, if one of these modern people walks up to an Orthodox Jew and says, I have an open mind, he'd say, well, close the door. You're an ignoramus. And you don't even know it. So when you go back to the text, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Don't use worldly wisdom. That's what they're using. Use God's wisdom that comes from the Word of God. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Many associate uh, the seven mountains with Rome and the papacy because Rome is well known for the city on, on, a seven, on seven hills. It didn't, say, it didn't say hills. It said mountains. Rome's not sitting on mountains. In the Bible, mountains are sometimes a figure of governments. You want an example for that? Look in Daniel chapter 2, verse 5. Daniel chapter 2, verse, I'm sorry, 35, verse 35. The city of Rome is built on hills, not mountains. It's probably better to see the seven mountains here as representing the seven kings and kingdoms described later in this same chapter. Let me keep it in context here. Many people find the connection between religious Babylon and Roman Catholicism irresistible, though, you know. That's what they think it represents, is Catholicism. But there's a flawed thought in that. You need to understand that while I think that it is part of the religious Babylon, to think that that's the key, it's, you're, 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 you're not seeing how big the real religious system is. It's so much bigger than the Roman Catholic Church. But that being said, we already see Roman Catholicism setting up for its great part in this great prostitute, this great Babylon. It's already happening. Okay, Her ultimate partnership with a one-world religion is inevitable. That's the Roman Catholic Church. Listen, I want to read this for you. Okay, This is factual. This is not my thoughts. This is not my opinion. Pope John Paul II. Remember him? John Paul II. He made this bizarre statement when he was addressing a crowd, an ecumenical prayer gathering. At the prayer gathering, you had Christians, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, and others. They're all together. And, and here's what he told them. He said, your efforts are going to unleash, quote, profound spiritual energies in the world and bring about a new climate of peace. Then he made a pledge. Here's the pledge that he made. This is the Pope. The Catholic Church, quote, the Catholic Church intends to 
share in and promote such ecumenical and interreligious cooperation. And most Catholics are hearing him speaking going, wow, that's awesome, because they've never been taught the Word of God in the church. They can't think for themselves. Don't, don't be angry at the Catholic Church. Feel sorry for those people. Reach out to them. Love them. They need to know the truth. Later, the Catholic Review, which is a journal, they commented on what the Pope said in that prayer gathering. Here's what they said, quote, direct quote, the unity of religion promoted by the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II. Please don't ever call me Holy Father. Please don't ever. Uh, and I know you won't. Um, just talk to my wife. You'll find out there ain't nothing holy. Okay, it's, Any holiness is God in me. It's not me. Okay. And approved by His holiness. Listen to this now. Let me back it up. The unity of religion promoted by the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, and approved by His holiness, the Dalai Lama, is not a goal to be achieved immediately, but a day may come when the love and compassion which both Buddha and Christ preached so eloquently will unite the world in a common effort to save humanity from senseless destruction and lead toward the light, toward the light in which we all believe. Save the church and save humanity from a senseless destruction. And when Antichrist shows up, that's what he does. He brings world peace for a moment. <laughs> and they all are sucked right into it. Verse 10. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. This is one of the more difficult passages in the Bible and certainly in the book of Revelation. It can mean so many different things. And so any pastor who tries to share as if he knows for sure, uh, he, 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 there's no way you can know for sure. Some explain these seven kings, fast, five past kings, one present and one to come, as the succession of the Roman emperors that were living back in the days of John. But there are many historical difficulties with that approach. I'm not going to go into all of them. But here's a possibility. Did you hear what I said? It's plausible. I'm not saying this is it. I'm saying it's, this is very likely, okay? It's a reference to the five world empires that have already fallen before John's day. What are those five empires? Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Medo-Persian Empire, and Greece. The one that is, is referring to the world empire of John's day. What was that? Roman Empire. And the other that has not yet come refers to the one world empire to come under this, this uh, prostitute. A revival of the Roman Empire. That's what it will be. It will be a revival of the Roman Empire. So now, let's take and put this in perspective. Look at the second part of verse 10. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. The seventh will quickly be taken over. Why? Because there's an eighth that is coming. There's not just seven. There's an eighth and will become the state of the Antichrist. Look at the next verse. You don't have to go very far to see it. Uh, but remember, listen, before we look there, there are problems with this viewpoint, so please don't take it as if that's, this is the way it is. Every view has some difficulties. But look at verse 11. As for the beast that was, that was and is not, it is an eighth, there it is, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. 
So the Antichrist is, the one, is, the, uh, is one of the seven in the sense that he shares in the characteristics with all previous world empires. But his fate is sure, believe me. The beast will be destroyed. Now let's look at verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So there's going to come a rising up of these ten different nations or kings, okay? Uh, it, it's likely alluding to the ten-nation confederation in Europe. You know, you have the, the European uh, confederation, and, and right now it's about 27 or 28 different nations. That, when Antichrist comes, he's going to bring world peace. He's going to reduce that down to ten, and there will be ten of those. And that's what I think it's referring to here. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 or 20, 24 verse 45, Daniel 2, 24 through 45, gives us that image of a ten-nation confederation. Okay? Uh, interestingly, in the final battle, in concert with and in submission to the Antichrist, the Antichrist with these nations will make war against Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, the ten nations have not yet been formed. If you go back to the beginning of the European Union, you have to go back to 1957 when it was called the European Economic Community, the EEC. That's when six European nations met to talk about combining their nuclear, coal, and economic resources. They met together in Rome and signed the Treaty of Rome, the beginnings of the present EU. And in many places in Europe, the EU flag is just as prominent as a national flag. So I, I, I do believe that that's going to play a role in the end, okay? Uh, when the alignment or the realignment of these ten nations takes place, this confederation of nations will emerge as an heir to the ancient Roman Empire under the leadership of Antichrist. Verse 13, there are of one mind, they are of, these are of one mind, and they had hand over their power and authority to the beast, to the Antichrist. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. So let there be no doubt, okay, Christ is going to win the battle. Amen. We sang that Sunday in that wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I, man, I was so, I was, man, I was lifted to the rafters in that place when we were singing that song. I'm telling you, if I would gotten right up right then and preached, woo! I had, to, I had to let off a little steam, you know, I was so excited. But that, that's, that, that probably is my favorite hymn, and the reason it's my favorite is because of the richness of the doctrine, the theology that's in that hymn. Luther didn't leave anything out. <laughs> he nailed it. Verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. That is you, and that is me. Chosen, called, and faithful. Whatever their exact identity, their actions are going to be clear. Listen, they will join, these ten nations will join with the Antichrist in the war against Jesus Christ in a battle alluded to in the sixth and seventh bowls that we're going to study and that we mentioned last week in Revelation 16. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations 
and languages. Again, the harlot presides over, wow, multitudes of people, of nationalities, of languages. This tells us that the great prostitute, her influence is worldwide through her connection to the beast. This will uh, be a truly one-world religion in that day when the beast rises up and declares that he is God. Okay? What is important to notice is that the great prostitute, the world religious system, is completely connected to the Antichrist and his government. It almost seems unthinkable until you look back at history and find that throughout our own history, the history of religion, uh, oftentimes there's been a willing servant to the supporter of tyrants, or that serves as a supporter to tyrants. Think about how tyrants have used the church to do their bidding. And, and that's what's going to happen in the end again. And the church is going to be used. Hey, by the way, Politicians do it all the time. They use the church for their own political prowess, for their own political system. And once they get in power, they forget the church. And they move on to what they really want to do. Uh, look at verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. Wow. Wow. So probably at the three-and-a-half-year mark, you know, Satan has conjured up this whole thing, and now all of a sudden there's this division between Satan and the ten nations, or Antichrist and the ten nations, and the beast. The beast is on the outside. Why? Because she represents these pagan world religions. They don't need them now. Three-and-a-half years in, Antichrist rises up and says, I'm God. Worship me. Forget about the world religions. Okay, many scholars, uh, in fact, let's, let me read the rest of verse 16 first. The ten horns that you saw, they are the beast, uh, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Forget about God having to judge her, she'll never make it that far. Oh, he is judging her, but he's allowing the enemy to do it. Just like he allowed the enemy to haul off the northern kingdom Israel, and the southern kingdom Judah into captivity. Many scholars believe that what causes the divide between the world religious system and the Antichrist and his ten European nations is that she has served her purpose and is now expendable. But it's also plausible that she comes to realize around the midpoint of the tribulation the true nature of the beast. I mean, when he stands up and says, I'm God, now all of a sudden, the light goes on. Up until that point, she never thought that. She never saw him as claiming to be God. She thought he was this great mastermind of world peace. And now all of a sudden, the truth comes out. Okay? That he, in fact, is Antichrist. So at some point in the tribulation, the apostate pseudo-religious system will have a falling out with the Antichrist who directs the ten European nations. That makes sense because at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist will not tolerate the worship of anything, including her religions, these pagan religions. Now, turn in your Bible quickly, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's look at this together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and look at verse 3. 
It says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, that would be the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he's going to come up against even pagan worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what we're reading in Revelation absolutely lines up there in that passage. Now go back to, uh, if you will, to chapter, six, or chapter 17, verse 16. The latter part of verse 16 says, They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Once his power at the midway point of the tribulation is consolidated, he's got it from 28 nations down to 10 nations. His power is consolidated. He has used for three and a half years the pagan religious system to give him what he needs, the power that he needs. Once everything is in place, um, the Antichrist no longer needs the help of this religious Babylon. He will work to dismantle her and destroy her and her one world religion. History has proven to us over and over the goal of tyrants and many politicians is to use the religious church for their own purposes, and then they discard it. Well, that's going to happen in a bigger way. Verse 17, For God has put in, in their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handling over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So basically what John is saying there is that God is orchestrating everything that's happening. This rising of power of the Antichrist, the gathering, the consolidation of His power under ten nations, and then finally the outcome of the beast being or the uh, woman being destroyed. All of that is God's plan. It's all playing perfectly into God's will. That's why every day you should pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? There really isn't any, there's no greater prayer than that. You can't pray above that. What you see in heaven, what God sees in heaven, you want to come to earth. And Lord, do it through me. Praise God. So God directed the judgment against religious Babylon. As we well know from Scripture, God will sometimes use a wicked group, and in this case it's ten kings, to be an instrument of His judgment against another wicked group, which is the world religious system. In the case of, of, of this situation, God will ordain the political support of these ten kings for the Antichrist. He is in effect uh, giving the world just exactly what the world wants godless religion and godless rulers so now you look at our election and i see so many christians who cannot cope with the thought that somebody would win other than donald trump but you have to understand thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and you don't know that god's not allowing something to happen right now to shake the church, to awaken us so that we return to God. Because I'll tell you right now, in this nation, we need revival. We need to return to God. And don't tell me that it, we're not qualified for a chastisement of God when we kill more babies than anybody else in the womb. 
And so I'm not saying that, I'm not telling you that's what it is, and I'm not telling you that that's what's going to happen. I'm telling you that from the Bible, it happened a lot. <laughs> and it could very well be the case now. So instead of fighting again, I'm not, look, I want, here's what I want in an election. I want every legal vote to count. And then whoever wins the election, I'm going to support. That's, that's my president. But if that president goes awry and goes off and takes us into other places like this, I'm not going to support that. Amen. I'm a Christian here no matter who the president is Amen. in this nation. If this nation comes under great persecution because of the governmental leaders, I'm still going to be a Christian in America. I, my, that just means my ministry just went way up in, in opportunities. Amen. Amen? I have for at least 15 years, if not 20 years, I've always felt that I'll probably end up in a prison one day. <laughs> I've already worked that out in my mind. I, I really have. That I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a preacher in prison. If that's what it comes to, I'm not wishing that on myself. I want to stay free. But if I end up in a prison, that's not going to shut down the ministry. That just opens more doors. I, I felt the same way when I was on an airplane one time and the thing was about to crash. I mean, I mean, this thing was shaking and everything was going crazy. And the, the pilot came on and said, everybody just make sure you stay seated and buckled in. I saw that you can always tell if it's something that happens regularly or semi from the stuff that's really weird. Because I saw all the attendants running back to their seats. And in that moment, I thought, this thing could go down. And immediately, my first thought, okay, what can I say in a short amount of time? If that nose starts to dive, or if we start to turn like this, I'm going to stand up or somehow yell out and preach the gospel before we go down. If I'm going to do anything left in my life before that plane goes down, I'm going to have the gospel of Jesus Christ on my lips, hoping that people will hear and receive the gospel. See, I already got that in my head. If I'm on a plane and that starts to happen, that's already going to happen. I'm not going to sit there and, oh, 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 bury my head. Use the opportunity. You're going to die anyway. <laughs> People don't survive plane crashes like that, okay? Let's go, with the, let's go with the numbers here. It's a chance to preach Jesus, to stand up and proclaim Christ. And guess what? No attendant, no, no marshal on the plane is going to stand up and stop you. They're holding on for dear life. You've got an open pulpit, man. Use it. Well, that's what it's going to be like as we move further and further into a messed up world with greater persecution. It's greater opportunity. We're salt and light. Use it. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we're coming to the end. Verse 18, And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, in John's day, the great city was no doubt Rome. She was the political, economic, and religious center of the world at that time. That's Rome. But Babylon has always been the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth when referring to a worldly system. In that day, Rome was the personification of Babylon. Okay, today, idolatry is just as strong, but it's even more dispersed. Today, which city in the world is most readily identified with the world system? I don't know. Hollywood? Wall Street? Washington? I don't know. The question for Christians is, does that system, Hollywood, Wall Street, Washington, 
does it rule over me? Great question. I remember when a wonderful friend and a great mentor for me, Mickey Evans, made the statement in a sermon he was preaching to a bunch of preachers. And he said, when was the last time you had a woman undressing in your room that wasn't your wife? And you could look at these preachers going, not me. And he goes, so in your, on your TV set, you've not seen any shows where women are dressed scathingly? He said, isn't it interesting with our television sets that every chair in the living room faces it? Isn't it interesting in the political system, in the election, we stay glued to what's happening in Washington. In an economic downfall, we stay glued to what's happening in Wall, on Wall Street. The question is, does it rule you? Is it your God? You only know the answer to that by how much time you spend doing it. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that's what our prayer ought to be every day, and that's what we ought to fill our heart with every day, more than the stuff that's in this world. Amen? Amen. Father, tonight we just give you thanks for your goodness. We go, oh, you're so good to us. <laughs> Even when we fall short in sin, your grace abounds. Paul said it this way, where, grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That's not a license to sin. That's just to say that clothed in flesh and blood, we're going to fall short. But thank God you already knew about it. You already got it covered. And so that just compels us tonight, knowing that, to want to live for you even more. To surrender every day, fresh and new, our lives that the Holy Spirit can do a work in us and then do a work through us that others would know you. Lord, may this study in Revelation from beginning to end do nothing but raise the flag for us being witnesses for Jesus Christ while we still have opportunity. And Lord, help us, those of us who have slipped into idol worship and didn't even know it, May we get back on the right path with you and not allow any system, whether it be in Hollywood, be in Wall Street or in Washington, keep us from you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great evening.